If you would, turn to the Bible to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Today we will look at the part of the letter to the church in Smyrna. There are seven letters in Ephesus, chapters 2 and 3. Today is the second one. Last week was the letter to the church in Ephesus. This is the second one this morning to the church in Smyrna. This is a very, very small section, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2. It's uh, very similar to all the others. As I told you, they have a, a, a common framework. This one is a slightly different, and you'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Today's sermon has a heavy subject. And in our church, we like for children to be in the worship service. We see a whole lot of good in that. One of the most influential things in a child's life is for kids to be with adults who are taking this very moment seriously. They're not scrolling through Facebook, but they're engaged in listening to a sermon. They are Bible open. They are focused. They are singing. They are participating in the worship service. And for kids to be able to see that, that's excellent. And in our estimation, um, very profitable. But sometimes the sermons can be rather heavy if we preach the Word of God. And today's sermon is about death quite a bit. And so we're going to trust that you moms and dads and grandparents will handle it well if there's anything that needs to be discussed later on. Death has a way of impacting life, perhaps more than anything. Death will hit us hard, and it will get us thinking about so many things. And there is no set way for us to die. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know if we'll live to be old and die. We don't know if we're going to be down. Death is a question mark in so many ways. But when, when we experience it and we experience it around us, it really does impact us. Even now, many of us, live with the heaviness of having lost loved ones. Some very recently, and we feel that. Some not so recently, and we still feel that. That's how big death can be. Another factor with death is that we don't get to choose how we're going to die. Sometimes people die of just old age. Sometimes people die from being sick or ill and it takes their life, it declines, their health declines. But other times, people die in a way that is truly admirable or honorable. We might say they died for the cause. Not everybody gets an opportunity to die for the cause, but if we did have the opportunity to die for a cause, would we? And this is in many ways, what today's passage is about, what this letter from Jesus to the church in Smyrna is. A few years ago, there was a guy, a young man with a young wife and young children who went to seminary with some of my buddies that I went to seminary with. 
He pastored in Texas, and he was a really, really faithful guy. He was driving home from work one day, working for a church, and there was a lady with children broken down on the interstate. So he pulled over and got out to help her. While he was on the side of the interstate helping this mom with her children, a tractor trailer hit him and killed him. He's a good buddy to many of my good buddies. Just a sad, tragic story of a guy who was trying to do a good thing, help out somebody on the side of the road, which hopefully many of us have done and would do if we were in that position. And in doing that, he died. Now, I don't necessarily want to say that he died for the cause of any certain thing, but he died doing good. And we can always say things like, that little moment is a picture of who he really was, helping people, trying to do good, make a difference, having a heart, caring about that situation, what would happen to them, and those sorts of things. Death is good for us when we start to think about it like that. But I'm even nervous talking about death today just because it can be taken so oddly. We just don't like to talk about it, do we? Where a grandmother had died. I did a funeral this past week where a grandmother had died, and she had 16 grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and one of her adult grandchildren, she was in her 20s, stood up and gave a eulogy. It was a great eulogy, and I was glad to be there to hear it. And one of the things she said was that on her grandmother's deathbed, as she sat there with her and talking to her and her health was declining, on one of the very last days that she was able to speak at all, she called her granddaughter over, adult grandchild. She pulled her close and she whispered in her ear, I am so very proud of you. And she shortly after that, the next day, passed away. And that granddaughter, with tears in her eyes, tells that story as if her grandmother, her grandmother's life, and her grandmother's death impacts her now and hopefully always. Death is like that. Death can mess us up, shake us. Death can raise all sorts of questions And yet death can also be so very good for us. God can use it. In our passage today, we have the words of Jesus himself to the church in Smyrna, be faithful unto death. Read with me, if you will, at Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
That's a small letter, isn't it? It contains so much of the framework that I told you last week all seven of these messages have to each of the churches. It's got a part at the beginning to the angel of the church. It's got a part there where it recalls uh, Christ's revealing of himself from, from chapter one. Here it is the words of the first and the last. That's Jesus who died and came to life. That's Jesus. That's how Jesus is describing himself. And it's from him and it's to the church. First and the last, he's the beginning. There's never a time before Jesus, and there will never be a time after Jesus. He is truly the eternal God, the second person of the Godhead, the Trinity. That's Christ. He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he has died, and now he lives. He has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he is the authority over your life, whether you are trusting that or not. This is Jesus, and he has a message for the church. He has a message for his churches. Last week was to Ephesus, and we heard that strong message about all the good things they do and the good works that they have, yet they don't love. They don't love their first love. They've forsaken their first love. They don't love God, and therefore, in not loving God rightly, they can't love others faithfully, accurately, wholly, consistently. And that was the church of will remove the problem. And he warned them they must repent. And if they will not repent, he will remove their lampstand. He will put out their light. They will no longer be a church. But today's letter is to the church in Smyrna, and we see the same similar framework. It begins in verse 9 with, I know. That's what happens in almost all of them. Verse 9, he says he knows some things about them. But in five of the seven letters, he has criticism for them. But it's here with Smyrna, and it's later with Philadelphia, that there is no uh, criticism. Uh, he, he speaks to them, and he tells them what to do, and he observes things about them, and he compliments them and commands what, them, what they should be doing, but no criticism. Today's has no criticism. It's just a few verses, a few little sentences to the church in Smyrna. I want to point out two messages that are in this today, two points. The first is Jesus saying, I know your suffering. The first point today is Jesus saying, I know your suffering. Verse 9 I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The Bible teaches us that God knows everything. The Bible teaches us that God sees everything. And here we have the Lord Jesus telling his church what must have come to them as a huge relief. He knows what they're going through. The way our insecurities work and the way the hardship of life kind of deals with us is that when we start to suffer, we automatically feel isolated, separated, lonely. That's what I'm going through. They think we've got it all together. They don't know how much I'm hurting. I remember being at a some sort of an event one time, and hearing a friend of mine, a young lady, speak. 
And she said, you know, I feel so much like a duck sitting on water. Above the water, a duck looks so nice and peaceful and gliding across the water and everything looks perfect. But under the water, what nobody can see are two little feet on that duck just working like crazy, trying to get the direction right, trying to go, trying to speed up. She said, what people see in me may be that I'm somewhat holding it all together, but what people don't see is my legs in the unseen underwater going like crazy. Sometimes life feels like that in our suffering. I know it does. And I know that life is extremely hard. So Jesus writes a letter to his church in Smyrna and says, I know what you're going through. I know about your tribulation. I know how hard it is to be poor, to never have enough money to make ends meet, to struggle to put food on the table, and how that compounds our struggles One struggle is one thing. Two struggles is twice as much. Three struggles just seems like I can't catch a break. Nothing is going right. Everything is so messed up. Jesus knows that this is what they're going through. And he tells them this. Now, he doesn't say a whole lot about it to comfort them. And that's interesting. But perhaps it is a comfort in and of itself to just say, I know. Because God is so big, and he is a father in heaven, and he loves us with an everlasting love, that him knowing about our problem seems to work mightily in our life with comfort. Perhaps a kid that is scared, wondering where the parents are, as soon as the parents are present, things change. There is comfort. Perhaps a kid that has fallen and is crying and thinking that they're hurt, as soon as the parent is there to say, it's okay, they will suck up those tears. God saying to his suffering church, I know, is a comfort in and of itself. There are really four things here that he identifies as their suffering, their tribulation, their poverty, the slander of those, and then that prison is coming. They're going Uh, Some of them are going to be thrown in prison. And these are all different things. Tribulation is just how hard it is, the opposition. Tribulation is the persecution that they are facing. It's not easy to be a Christian in their context. Many people are against them. They're looked down upon. They aren't respected. They're not seen as high-character people. They're seen as uh, rejects. They're seen as apostates. They're seen as those who have gone against the norm, the culture. And so they are facing hardship. Poverty is that they are poor and that they are struggling. But notice here that we have this fat poor little statement here in my Bible in parentheses. I know you are poor. I know you're poverty. But he says, but you are rich. This great reminder to us that while, yes, we do need money and stuff in this life to survive. It's not the real treasure. It's not the real treasure. Jesus here tells his poor church that they are rich. They are poor and rich, he says. 
I know your poverty and that you are rich. The Bible says in Christ we have everything. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 4 that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Maybe not our wants, but God always supplies our needs. In Psalm 37, we have that awesome mention that you'll recall where he says, I've been young and now I am old and I have never seen God's righteous forsaken and I have never seen God's children begging for bread. God takes care of those who are his. And while this life may put us in trials, physical trials, financial trials, health trials, difficulties, opposition, we are to be reminded that in Christ we have everything. We are children of the King, and we are citizens of the kingdom, and we have eternal life. We will live forever in heaven. But he knows that they're suffering through poverty. It's hard to get a job in that context. It's hard to make a dollar in that context. It's hard to get anybody to think well of you. It's hard to run a business in that context because everybody knows your faith in Christ is a negative in that setting. It's hard to even be seen or form a friendship. I know your poverty, he says, but you are rich. And then the third thing is that there is slander there. And the slander comes about them from the Jews. Look what it says. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Surely you know by now that not all religious people are religious in a good way. And surely you know by now you've lived long enough to know some religious people in the world are bad. I don't want our sermons to beat up on the Jews. I want us to be aware that just in the Baptist church or motion Christian church, there are fakes as well. There are many that go through the motions and do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many that claim grace but show no grace. There are many that think that they are forgiven but cannot offer forgiveness. There are many who have escaped the judgment but are still filled with judgmental spirit. Here, the Jews of that day in Smyrna are slandering the believers. And the reason why this is such a big deal is because the only way any human being becomes a child of God, any human being, no matter where you're from, becomes a child of God is if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. To all who believed in his name, who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. John chapter 1 verse 12. You can only be in the family of God when your sins are forgiven you are not in the family of God by birth. And this is a distinction that you all need to know. God is fatherly to every human being. He made the sun rise today and he blesses them with goodness on, on all fronts. And he keeps us alive and he blesses our lives. But that's just him being fatherly. God isn't the father to every human being. He is only the father to those who come to him through Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Our sins have separated us from God. 
And so the Jews, who by really definition are the children of God, and the Savior, not even children of God because they don't trust in the Savior. A Jew that believes in the Savior is a true Jew, but a Jew that does not believe in the Savior is not even a true Jew. And for what that's worth, a Christian that does not love Jesus is not really a Christian. And a church goer or a church member who does not really trust and follow Jesus is not really a church goer or a church member. And a baptized person who does not really love and follow Jesus is not really a child of God. And I know that living in this day and throughout the days, it's blurry and complicated and messy, and we really can't tell some of the time. I know that. And this passage says that Jesus the Lord knows that too. So the Jews who live outwardly and boldly claiming to be the people of God slander the true children of God who trust in Christ. And Jesus says, I know they talk that way about you. Jesus says in the Gospels in John chapter 15, they treated me that way and they'll treat you that way. They hate me, they'll hate you. They kill me, they'll kill you. And Jesus lets them know, I know that they talk bad about you. I know that they slander you. Now this is not, it's a little nugget right here, this is not a time for you to feel comfort when the people of this world talk bad about you for other reasons, all right? If we have bad attitudes and people slander us because of our bad attitudes, well, more power to them. If we lie and cheat and steal and we're two-faced and hypocritical and they slander us, okay, well, maybe they're right. Maybe they need to say that about us. This is not a message from Jesus in heaven to the church on earth that we say, hey, nobody talk about me. The world talks. We know that. People talk. The church, if you give them a reason to talk, well, guess what? You're just falling right into the hands of the world. The church needs to know that. This is why the Bible tells us to obey and humble ourselves and confess our sins and to bow down before him under the mighty hand of God, realizing that we need his grace and mercy. There's no place, literally no place, for a disobedient, hypocritical, prideful, unrepentant Christian getting mad that somebody slanders them. All that does is stir the pot and create more drama as it keeps going forward. But that's not what this is about. This is about people that follow Jesus and the other people that say they follow God slandering them. And he says they're not even people of God. He says they are a synagogue of Satan. Because if you claim God but don't know Jesus, you're not working for God. You're working against God in the same way that Satan is. Jesus says the same thing in the Gospel of John. He says that Satan is a liar, and all those that lie identify with him. He's their father. Jesus says that if you are a liar, then you are like your father, Satan. So these Jews that slander Christ's people are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus knows that they're going through that. Commentator Wilcox says, The persecution at Smyrna was made especially poignant by the fact that the great enemy was the local community of Jews. These weren't the God-haters that we're talking about about them. These weren't the atheists that we're talking about about them. It was the people right down the street that claimed to worship God too. How ugly is that for the unbelieving town? He goes on and he says, these were God's people racially, but not really. 
In Romans 2.28, you hear these very words. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian from the inside first. You're a Christian from the heart. You're a Christian believing. And whatever you think you're doing on the outside as a proof better only flow from the inside. The outward lives we live are the fruit that come from the root of faith. These slanderers did not have the root of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had outward lives that rejected Christ, and so their outward godly lives, which were really ungodly lives, slandered the truth of God. Jesus comforts them by saying, I know that you're going through that. And then the fourth thing that he says is do not fear what you're about to suffer. Verse 10, behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. So he tells them that worse is coming. You know, a lot of times we try to comfort people, we fall into it's gonna get better. We say that a lot, don't we? It'll get better. Things will get better for you, I'm sure. That's not always the case. And if it is always ultimately the case, eventually, it's certainly not always the case like tomorrow or next week. If today, this morning, was just one of those days, you woke up and the house was too hot because of how hot it was yesterday. I had my house set on 73 and it was 78 and my allergies were hitting. I bet I sneezed 100 times this morning before church. And when you've only got one hand, you can't even hold the Kleenex right. And then it was raining. I got here to church, and I could say, I thought, man, it's just one of those days, isn't it? Well, sometimes when you're having just one of those days, tomorrow's a lot better, isn't it? Sometimes when you're having just one of those days, tomorrow makes today look great. Hey, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring for us. And the church in Smyrna was desperate for things to get better. They were desperate for the goodness of God to be visible in their lives with some favor. And yet he writes them a letter that says, they're going to throw you in prison. You're going to suffer more. Now he does say here that it's just 10 days. And I'm not really sure if that's a literal 10 days or if that's a figurative for something or symbolic. I'm not sure. But it lets us know that it will at some point end. And I'll speak more about that later. He says here, though, that the devil will throw them into prison. It's the work of Satan. It's the opposition of the work of God. But Jesus is the one telling them this. And it's a reminder how the devil, we see them on a leash. He's on a rope. He's in chains. He only does what God allows him to do. And we see this because he says here that you may be tested. The devil's effort to kill them is a test that God is allowing. And so in that way, they are strengthened knowing that God knows. What a comfort it was to be to them that their Lord Jesus knows their suffering. And one of the reasons why that is such a comfort to them because to know Jesus, to have read his gospels, to know his biography, his life, his story, is to know he also suffered. Christ suffered for his people And the Bible teaches us that God's people identify with Christ in his sufferings. These things are not new. 
They saw them in the life of Christ. These things are not new. The tribulation, the poverty, the slander, the prison. They know those through the book of Acts. All of the apostles experienced these things. And yes, you and I have been very fortunate to live in a time, an epoch, if you will, in a nation where so much of this is just absent. And we praise God for the country that we live in and the freedom, humbled, the many goodness, good blessings that we have here. May we be humbled and grateful for that, that we grow up in a time like this. But may we also not forget that in many places in the world right now, this is an everyday thing. One of the reasons why people read the book of Revelation, they think that every bit of it is completely future, is because we're so disconnected that this very thing that we're reading about right now is happening right now in many, many places in the world. In many places in the world right now, these exact same things are happening. There is tribulation. There is poverty for believers. They don't have food to eat, and they cannot get a job because of their loyalty to Christ. They are slandered everywhere they go. They are thrown in prison, many in prison today, and they are often killed, and we will talk more about that later. But there's another reason why they are comforted, not just because Christ has suffered and God's people suffer, but do you remember how Revelation told us this vision began with the seven lampstands? Do you remember that? Not only does Jesus know about their suffering, but in, John, in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Not only does Jesus know what they're going through, Jesus is with them as they are going through it the very present help in time of trouble, the Emmanuel, God with us. In your suffering, take comfort. Take comfort that he knows your suffering and he is with you in your suffering. This world may have abandoned you, your loved ones may have abandoned you, but may it be the case that you are strengthened that your God never abandoned you. I know your suffering. After he identifies with them this way, I know your suffering, we come to his command, his second point. And there we look at verse 10, the second half of it, and we see Jesus saying, be faithful unto death. What a charge. You would think there, if he was just trying to be a loving dad or mother, that he would say, it's all right, or you don't deserve that, and I promise we'll go get an ice cream after we leave here. The things that we do to try to comfort ourselves, and don't get me wrong, I'll, I'll buy my kids ice cream anytime they need it to. But the things that we would think would be the comfort for the church here are not that. There's no, you don't deserve this. There's, there's no, well, let's call the police and get this fixed. The police aren't going to help them in these contexts, not at all. There's no, 
worldly comfort in this moment. This very world system that is opposing this Christ opposes his people. And there is nothing that God says to them that is like that. The message from Jesus to his suffering church in Smyrna is be faithful unto death. Stick with it. Don't give up. Don't deny me. And once you die, look what it says. I will give you the crown of life. And that's it. And then it goes into the regular framework of how they all end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Be faithful unto death, and then after you die, I'll give you the crown of life. There's, other, one other, there's only one other place in Scripture where the crown of life is mentioned, and that's in James chapter 1, verse 12, which is also filled with discussion on suffering. James chapter 1 is all about suffering, right? The trials, the tribulations, the difficulties, the Lord knows God's working in them. And that's the only other mention of the crown of life. Jesus says, be faithful unto death. Wilcock writes, a great lesson here is that suffering is certain. But there's another great lesson, and that is that it is limited. For these Smyrnians, it would be for 10 days, sometime in their near future. And then there would, in the goodness of God, come an 11th day, and it would all be over. God's control does not mean is prevented from inflicting pain and hurt. Nowhere in our New Testament does it promise freedom from suffering in this life. That's not in the Bible. Indeed, without the cross, there will be no crown. But... What God does guarantee is that though the church may suffer, even the death of the body, even though we may die for the cause, the church will not suffer the death of the soul. That's to be a comfort to us. We are not to think we will altogether avoid it. We are not to think that we don't deserve it. There was only one really good person, only one completely, holy, thoroughly perfect, and that is Jesus. And he suffered and was killed. The church is identifying with them, with him in this way. And the letter to the church in Smyrna tells us this be faithful unto death. That's the message. The message of God's word is that for some of his people, it will cost them their lives. You need to know that. Again, our context seems so distant from that, and I know that it does. But if it ever gets that way for us, are we ready for that? It causes us to ask questions like this. Well, what's the worst that can happen? We die and go to heaven forever to be with our God and Father. We die and we go to be with the one who loves us more than anybody on earth loves us here. We die and we go to the place where it is 100% better than here, where joys are everlasting and peace cannot be subdued. What's the worst that could happen? Eternal life in heaven with all of God and his people. That causes us to ask not what's the worst that could happen, but what's the worst that they could do to us? Kill us and usher us into that? 
I remember when KB sang in his song, what are they gonna do? What murder us? What murder does is send a surge of us to go put churches up. They cannot hurt us. If dying is gain, as the Apostle Paul writes. And I remember later when KB said in his song, listen to this. Remember my God is what I wrote in my will. That's a good line to put in your will, isn't it? Remember my God is what I wrote in my will. You can break my bones. You can't break my zeal. That's a good line. That death, although fearful for us because we've never experienced it, will not be bad for us. Death Jesus tells us, may be coming, death for the cause. But when it happens, he will award them with the crown of life. He will give it to those. And then he says here at the end, if you look at the end of verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, this expression, the one who conquers, is in all seven letters. If you look at the end of each of the seven, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, Laodicea, the one who conquers, that phrase is in there every time. Here, it says they will not be hurt by the second death. Now, this phrase, second death, is a big deal. It's in the Bible, okay? Got the first death and the second death. And just in general, here's what it means. The first death is the death of the body, this physical dying, right? Like when you attend a funeral, that person died the first death, all right? You get, you know, something happens to you, you get shot and die, that's the first death, right? You die of cancer, that's the first death, the death of the body. And it's not the most important, it's the death. The bigger one, the much, much, much bigger one is the second death, the death of the soul. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, don't fear those that can kill the body. That's hardly an issue. In God's mind, dying isn't that big of a deal. If you die in his grace with the forgiveness of sins, it only gets better from there. In God's mind, what's a really, really big deal? The biggest and most important thing in the whole world for every one of us is what happens to your soul. Who are you really? That soul dying, meaning not accepting God, not trusting God, not loving him, that soul therefore being condemned, that death of the soul is the worst thing in the world for you. And it is the most important thing in the world. And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The reason why Jesus can say this to his suffering church is because not only has he already suffered to comfort them, he's also already died. They aren't about to experience anything that he hasn't. Christ our Lord, that every knee will bow down to, died. And that's what he says in verse eight, who died and came to life. In chapter one, he says, I'm the living one. 
I died and now I live forevermore. Christ not only comforts us through in our suffering, through his suffering, Christ comforts us in our death through his death. Amen? Who Christ is a true Savior who has already walked before us, who has already dealt with anything we will have to deal with. Christ has already done it all for us. And when he died on the cross that day, suffering under the wrath of God and the sin of you and me and the whole world, when he died on the cross and they buried him in the grave, three days later he rose again. And Christ did that finalizing work on behalf of the plan of his father through the great love so that whenever the time comes for us to die, whatever brings it in a hospital bed, at our home, tragically on the interstate doing good, or because of the cause of Christ under persecution, we will say, the one who conquers, they will not kill my soul. I will hope in Christ. In, in, in the book of Acts, we see this time and time again. And in Acts chapter 21, after already a long story of the Apostle Paul, we have Paul saying, I've got to get to Jerusalem to encourage the churches there. Those people need encouragement. I'm going to get there. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to preach to Rome. And I'm going to preach to Caesar once I get past Jerusalem. And all this is unfolding in the book of Acts. And everybody's trying to talk him out of it. And Paul finally says, stop. Why are y'all making me upset? Why are y'all trying to make me cry? You're trying to keep me from going. I'm going. And I'm ready to tell them about Jesus. He says, and I'm even ready to die for Christ. In Acts chapter 21, verse 13. Death is not Jesus saying for the people of God. And we find strength in knowing that Jesus says, be faithful unto death. Well, last week I told you all that Jesus warned the church in Ephesus that if they do not repent, he will remove their light. And I told you all that he did. There is no longer a church in Ephesus. That ought to shake us. Well, today for the church in Smyrna, that suffers and is told to be faithful unto death. I want to tell you, their pastor, Bishop Polycarp, who was a direct disciple under this Apostle John, first generation, no gaps in the history line, set in the Bible studies, set in the prayer times, with the John that wrote this, Polycarp, was burnt at the stake alive because he would not deny Christ. You can look it up right now and read all the history of it. I read it all again this week. I asked Josh Womble to read it with me this week as we recalled the whole story of Polycarp. There's a letter out there called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. It's only about seven pages. You can read it in 10 minutes that recounts the whole story. There are lots of historians that tell the whole story that that first pastor after the apostles, Polycarp, was burned at the stake in front of the town. And time and time again, they asked him, just deny Christ, just deny Christ, just say that Caesar is God, that Polycarp reigns. And he said, I will not. 
And in the classic line, which you may have heard before, Polycarp said, I am 86 years old. And for 86 years, Christ has never done me any harm. I did not deny him then, and I will not deny him now. And they lit the fire. After he burned, they sensed that he was still alive, so they took a sword and stabbed him to confirm it. After they confirmed he died, they lit the fire again to make sure that it was all gone. And the message from his Lord and Savior was, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I'm not a historian, but what I do know, if you will trust in Christ, you will live with him forever. May that comfort you. He loves us, and he gave his all for us, and then to strength to his people is for us to live faithfully for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Revelation and how it is teaching and instructing us. We thank you, God, for the many examples that we have in the world of suffering and persecution that seem to be so distant from us, but are reminders. And Father, we thank you for this small little message to Smyrna. God, may we be faithful unto death. May we feel that we will not turn our backs on you that how can we give up on you if you never give up on us? And may God, if the day come, we ever find ourselves in that situation, either here in our land or abroad as missionaries, that we would be reminded that nobody loves us as much as you. You are faithful to the end. Oh, Father, may you strengthen your church today like you strengthened the church in Smyrna, that in our suffering we would be comforted by you, and in our dying we would be comforted by you. Oh, Father, raise up a church here that loves Jesus, not just on the good days, but all of our days. In his name we pray, amen.